0: Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. In this week's episode, Mary Woodward, SPA's Senior Advisor of Justice and Mental Health, talks with Ben Grimes. The topic is called, Two Languages Walk into a Bar and See a Fight differences between Aboriginal and standard Australian English narrative patterns. Let's hear what they have to say.
1: My name is Mary Woodward and I'm the Senior Advisor, Justice and Mental Health for Speech Pathology Australia. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Ben Grimes. Ben Grimes is a criminal lawyer and linguist and is a lecturer at the Charles Darwin University College of Business and Law in Darwin. He's got extensive experience in both research and practice in overcoming communication issues in the criminal justice system and in cross-cultural legal education. So, hello, and thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Uh,
0: hello. It's good to be with you today.
1: Now, Ben, as I understand, as I, as I explained in that little intro there, you've got the, the dual qualifications of being a criminal lawyer and a linguist, which is a really interesting combination. So I'm just wondering... How, how has that come about? How have those two worlds collided for you? It,
0: it is an interesting combination. And um, in some ways, you could say, you know, as a, as a criminal lawyer, it enhances my, uh, well, I don't want to use the word frustration, but it just makes me more aware of just how poorly we tend to do things uh, in the criminal justice system. Uh, in terms of how that all came about, I guess, um, you know, like all good stories, it, it it goes back a little way. So I was born and grew up in Indonesia. Um, So I grew up being multilingual. Um, I then, you know, started, well, did law and started practicing law up here in the Northern Territory with um, Aboriginal Legal Aid. Um, I I had done some undergrad uh, study around language as well. So I went out and practiced as a criminal lawyer um, across most of the top end, including a couple of years out in uh, East Arnhem Land, where, you know, probably about 98 99 percent of my clients spoke an aboriginal language as their first language um and so you know that just that background i think of having grown up multilingual and having you know a a bit of language awareness meant that my practice as a criminal lawyer i became really really quickly aware of um, how many uh, issues within the system were actually exacerbated by language problems um, or, you know, good initiatives or good ideas by different people within the system just weren't effective because of the breakdown in communication. Uh, so that was sort of the the springboard of, you know, just the, I guess, the the, the types of frustration that probably a lot of professionals um, experience in practice when you realise that you're not able to do your job as well as you'd like to um, because of communication issues. And so I, I um, then through, through, you know, a series of different... Um, Events ended up uh, managing a, a large program for the Aboriginal Interpreter Service to try and uh, improve communication within the criminal justice system and then uh, stayed on and, and managed there at the Aboriginal Interpreter Service and was able to bring about some systemic changes within how we actually deliver um, justice in, in the Northern Territory and embedding interpreters as a regular part of um, our our practices and, you know, how do we properly use interpreters, what are the things that we do that will uh, actually make the interpreter's job impossible. Um, And then all of that led me to decide that I probably should, you know, go on and pursue that interest. And so I went on and did a a Master's of Applied Linguistics and have, uh, I guess, just continued down that process of of researching and and, and training and trying to develop better practical tools that will equip our judges and our lawyers, our police officers to, um, you know, avoid making some of the mistakes that I made when I was practicing criminal law and Mm -hmm. also change the system as a whole.
1: Sorry, Ben, can you give us some examples of some of those practice and system changes that
0: you've you've yeah we 've had some um, some big things and we 've had some small things that all all add up so say one of the bigger changes that we we brought in um, probably back in about two thousand fourteen somewhere around there um, we actually moved to a what we call a, a court interpreter system or a court interpreter roster. So the the old system that was in operation, and so you know, in the Northern Territory, we we have courts um, that sit irregularly. We call them bush courts, other places they're known as circuit courts, um, that sit irregularly in about 20, 21 different remote Aboriginal communities. And the old system was that um, it was up to, you know, individual lawyers or individual prosecutors to make individual interpreter bookings for those court sittings. And often due to the, the nature of it, um, a lawyer might not be aware of who their specific clients were until they actually got the out to that minute. community. Yeah. Uh, that's right, the last minute. And, and so when I was looking at that um, from a systems point of view, my, my impression, I mean, and I had experienced this in... in um, Practice as a lawyer, doing a number of those court circuits, now I had developed the practice where I would just um, make a standing booking for every single day um, that I was in court for interpreters um, in the main languages of whatever community I was in, and so looking at the numbers you know across the Northern territory and realizing that actually you know in, in these communities where again 90, 95 percent or higher of defendants, witnesses, and victims speak. Um, an aboriginal language as their primary language uh, we should just have interpreters available all the time at court there, there was yeah. no point in waiting till you've got caught and then acting surprised as though we didn't know we needed an interpreter yeah. so we yeah. actually we moved be- to a system yeah. Yeah, where interpreters are available um, every single day in these bush court um, sittings in some places, uh, we would have interpreters in five languages available other places interpreters in three languages, but it it massively changed the um, approach when when you know whether you're a prosecutor corrections officer, defense lawyer, when you knew that the interpreter was there and waiting. The interpreter had already been through the court list, um, had identified potential conflicts of interest. Often there was an interpreting team, they'd allocated the most appropriate interpreter to each defendant or or witness. Um, And so the interpreters became really embedded in the system rather than being an add-on. And and one of the really nice changes we've seen uh, now is that the the courts have moved to actually recognise interpreters as officers of the court. So they're they're not an add-on, but they're actually just as essential to the administration of justice as lawyers and, and court staff.
1: And that must that must be making a huge difference to to the outcomes for for people in, of all you know in all capacities of the justice system. Uh,
0: uh, it it is. Um, it's you know it's not a single. Um, solution to everything but in terms of where we were um, you know six seven years ago compared to where we are now it's been a huge change to actually say interpreters are an essential component to what we do um, rather than an add-on um, so that's been that's been really good other you know other types of examples of uh you know i guess tools or things that we've developed um one is actually a a, a a test or an assessment process for how to determine if, if you should be working with an interpreter. So for lawyers whose clients speak some English, but they're not exactly sure where that cutoff point is. Um, we got a lot of feedback from lawyers and again, you know, having my own experience as a practitioner, we knew that if you have something like a 20-minute or a 30-minute assessment process, um, lawyers just won't use it. You know, we're too busy, um, too much time pressure you know, none of this is good, but it's the reality of being on the ground. And so we had to come up with an assessment process that a lawyer could use in, in you know, three or four minutes to actually make an informed decision about whether or not to um, work with an interpreter. So, so you know, we got together um, various people who are experts in the field and came up and, and together with, with lawyers came up with an assessment mechanism um, to actually work that out. That's now been incorporated um, into the Law Society Protocols, the Supreme Court Interpreter po- Protocols. It's been referred to in, in Northern Territory Supreme Court Judicial Decisions. Um, and it's, it's been incorporated nationally into the, the standards for um, working with interpreters in courts and tribunals. So that was a, a really simple tool that a lot of lawyers found very useful.
1: Is, is that assessment something that, I mean, obviously I, you know, I realise it was designed specifically for lawyers, but I'm wondering if, other disciplines might might also benefit from accessing it
0: um it it would be we we did in the initial stages we developed one for um health practitioners Mm, um we we didn't find as much receptiveness here in the northern territory um in the health space as we we did within the legal profession now you know part of that could just be that i'm a lawyer and it's easy for me to talk to lawyers um, so you know so the the legal one really has you know taken off and become embedded The the health one not as much but the the underlying principles and process are, are identical there, there's no real significant difference in terms of how you would actually do that assessment
1: interesting and then we're, we're very grateful that you've agreed to, to facilitate a webinar for speech pathology Australia at the end of July just wondering if you might like to to wet our audiences up in terms of uh, giving a bit of an explanation of what sort of thing you're likely to be discussing in that webinar
0: yeah well i guess you know and, and coming out of my my own personal background is is one of the things i often try to do is go how can we take the good work that linguists do and the linguistic knowledge that's often not accessible to non-linguists and how can we create tools or how can we package that linguistic knowledge in ways that um, people in other professions can actually use to improve their practice and so the area that I'm going to specifically focus on is understanding differences in in um the linguistic term would be narrative discourse but that's basically how people tell stories Mm -hmm. and and we we know that there are differences well across the world every every language has its own rules and its own conventions its own patterns for how you tell stories what's the logical way to tell a story what order do you put things in how do you express your opinion within a story how do you um put things in terms of the chronology or what happens if you uh, need to add in extra information that you'd forgotten from a previous part of the story? How do you include people's speech in a story? Um, How do you identify, you know, who the main characters are and who the background characters are? Um, How do you, how do you make it clear, you know, what the point of your story is? These are all kind of um, features that, that every language has different ways of embedding all of this knowledge into Um, how you tell stories and and obviously you know speaking from from my background as a criminal lawyer i would have to get clients to tell me their story um every single case you know what what happened that's right it's such a crucial part of of actually doing your your job Um, and then and then you know you make decisions you make very significant decisions based on um the story that you've gotten from your client and if you don't get story in the sense of you don't get a lot of detail or if you misunderstand the detail or if you misunderstand the overall point, you then end up making bad um, professional or clinical decisions and often will give bad advice to your your client, not because you don't know how to do your job, but because you're basing it on bad data to to begin with because of that um, storytelling process. And and so, you know, that was a, a regular thing that I encountered as a criminal lawyer was having clients speak to me um, sometimes you know telling the story three four five times um, in English through an interpreter even when it was done through an interpreter still from my point of view at the end going uh, you know I, I understand all the sentences you're telling me but I don't understand the story that you're telling me or I don't understand the point of what you're trying to tell me or I don't understand why you're telling me all of these particular details because in my mind they have no relevance or connection to um, you know the issue at hand, and so having you know regularly um, experienced that that process of just not understanding stories, not in the sense of not knowing the words that somebody 's saying, but actually not understanding the story as a whole and all the connections and the uh, within that story, um, a few years back, I decided to do some um, some research on that um, to actually see if we could pinpoint with a greater degree of, of precision what some of these differences were between um, standard Australian English ways of telling stories and um, Aboriginal ways of, of telling stories. And so obviously, um, you know, we, we tapped into the existing literature research that had been done, which was fairly minimal, but it was good, you know, good to be able to triangulate what, um, what we found in the research with what others had done. And we took a fairly simple approach in in our research and so we had uh, two videos. One was a pub fight and one was a fight on a bus, very kind of common Northern Territory scenarios um, uh, in terms of, you know, the criminal justice system. Yeah. And and so we played them to um, people individually, but half of the participants were were speakers of um, standard Australian English and the other half of the participants were Aboriginal speakers of um, of uh, an aboriginal language as their primary language and basically just had them watch each of the videos and you know tell me the story of what you what you saw and then asked a few clarifying questions similar to what you would get in court and then you know transcribed all of the responses and did a a linguistic analysis Um, and and you know we found some really interesting things Um, all of it's kind of correlated with other aspects that that Um, researchers had picked up in other kind of contexts, but um, to find it all sort of being present, we found 10 10 key features, 10 key differences in terms of how those two groups told stories. Um, And so it was really great, in a sense, to have it so clearly demonstrated in such a controlled uh, manner where we literally shown the same videos and then could see that people were telling the stories in very different ways. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah, what I'm what I'm hoping to do is really take out the um, the clinically relevant parts of that research and say, look, here's what we know so far about Aboriginal ways of telling stories. Um, how do we distinguish um, if you know if we're trying to assess somebody or draw conclusions on on you know somebody who who we're interviewing? How do we distinguish? essentially the you know the linguistically determined features of that story versus the individual idiosyncrasy so it might be that a person suffering from a cognitive impairment how do you work out you know which parts of the story that don't make sense to you which parts Mm -hmm. might be because of the cognitive impairment versus which parts are because of um, the linguistic patterns that they're or rules that they're operating under so yeah I'll try and you know unpack that and give some some you know practical tips to distinguish between the linguistically determined things that won't make sense Um, as well as then you know um, some suggestions for how to perhaps do your interviews in ways that um, minimize the potential for miscommunication.
1: It sounds like that's going to be something that's very relevant obviously for people who are working in the justice system or who are providing information to to justice professionals around someone's communication, but also to other speech pathologists working in other clinical fields who are going to be um, um, gathering information about someone's ability to to tell their story or to give information in in narrative form, which is obviously a key part of of a lot of speech pathologists' um, assessment protocols. So thank you very much, Ben. It's been lovely talking with you today. And as I say, we, we all can't wait <laughs> for your webinar um, at the end of July.
0: Yeah, excellent. No, I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you.
1: All right. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. And bye for now.